Uh, thank you for that reading. It's a, an interesting passage uh, as we're working our way through James. Uh, this is the passage for today, and uh, we run with it. It's the Word of God for us, and we apply it to us as He brings it to us. Every few years in Australia, uh, the government puts out a paper, a census paper, <clears throat> and it asks all of us to uh, complete giving over information about who we are and what we, be, uh, what we do and how much money we earn and uh, uh, whether we pay income tax or not, whether we should pay income tax or not. Um, but you know, you know what it's like. Most of you, I'm sure, have filled in a census paper. Um, but they are interested in uh, religion. Uh, it's kind of getting narrower and narrower, but the interest is still there. And it does ask if, uh, what our religion is. And uh, a number of people will simply put down Christian. Christian. And uh, according to the latest statistics, fewer and fewer people are putting down Christian. Uh, the number is dropping. In fact, I understand that uh, maybe Christians are in the minority now here in Australia. But even if they put down Christian, I wonder, and I can only wonder because I do not know the heart of, of anyone else, I hardly even know my own heart, uh, whether that is true or not. Because there is what we call a true faith and there is a counterfeit faith. Uh, you remember the Lord Jesus, when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, enter by the narrow gate. This is into true faith. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And what our Lord Jesus was saying, and indeed much of the teaching of Matthew reflects on this, that there are many men and women who have become religious, if I can use that term, but they've entered into religion through a wide gate. And the wide gate is one in which I often use the expression, it's the pick and mix gate. Uh, you know, you can pick this and mix that and just jumble it together. Uh, and as, as long as you're happy, you'll pick the bits you want, but you'll reject the bits you don't want. And you can mix it up with, uh, well, I'll maybe go to church occasionally and then the rest of my life I'll get on and live as I please. That is the pick and mix gate. Unfortunately, it doesn't lead to life in the sense of eternal life that God promises to those whose trust is in him. In other words, it is a counterfeit religion, a counterfeit faith. You know what counterfeit is? If you take a bit of money into the bank, a bank note, and they'll look at it, they'll inspect it, just to make sure it's true and real. It's not a fake. Well, James seems to be a bit concerned about counterfeit faith. And that's the first um, point I've got of four this morning. 
counterfeit faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And here it is. Can that faith save him? So faith is important in knowing salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But here James is looking at practical issues. Someone says he has faith. That's, you know, writing on the census form, yes, I'm a Christian. But is it a true faith or a counterfeit faith? And he uses this example, if a brother or sister... And again, remember that James is writing to Jewish converts on the whole, not entirely, but on the whole. And he's writing to a church. He's not writing and saying, if a man or woman is poorly clothed, he uses the term brother or sister. In other words, he's saying, you as a church, as a body of God's people, you profess faith in Jesus, but if someone comes in to your church who has a specific need, how do you deal with that? Do you say, well, I'm sorry that you know, you've got that need, um, but I trust everything will go well with you. And James is saying, no, that's not the way we should be. That is faith without works. If you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, they're nice words, excellent words. Indeed, that's what probably the poor brother or sister would like to have, to be at peace, to be warmed and filled. But it's not there. It's not there. And James uses that as a, 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 as a, a picture of faith without works. Earlier, for those of you who have been here before, we talked about the royal law. James mentions it earlier in the chapter. And the royal law is the law of the king. And we know what the law of the king is, that we have to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so faith must be part, must be um, uh, added to faith, sorry, to works must be added to faith. If we say we have faith, then that faith must work. And that's why he says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. No much point in having a dead faith. But the Bible says there is such a thing. And it's a counterfeit faith. It's a false faith. It's a deadly faith. It does not lead to life. The second that uh, James picks up is what I call a misplaced faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. I just get a couple of subpoints on this misplaced faith, misplaced on works. So even to say I have works is what you're depending on. 
In other words, that's what you're putting your trust in. That's where your faith lies. I'm depending on my works. I'm sure we've all met people like that. I have, certainly. If you talk with folks at all about the gospel, if you're sharing with them, you'll often hear people say, well, you know, I, 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 I try to live a good life. I, I know what the commandments are, and I try to follow these. Uh, that's that's the, the, the track that I'm on. That's what I'm happy to be doing. I've shared with you before, I'm sure, as I've shared in other places, that there are three standards that men and women tend to live by as far as thinking that they are right before God. Three standards. One is what I call the standard of self-righteousness. They look into their own heart, they look at their own life, and they think, yeah, yeah, I'm not that bad. Yeah, I try to follow the commandments. Okay, I might not get them all right, or, or you know, not all the time, but generally, things are pretty good. And there is that self-satisfaction that one day, if I appear before God, then I'll, I'll be able to give a good account of myself. That's what we call the standard of self-righteousness. Well, God has a slightly different standard, as we'll see in a moment. The second standard would be one of what I call comparative righteousness. I'm not that bad. And if you see the guy that lives next door, if you knew what kind of life he had, how he lives, what his standards are, well, I can tell you I, I'm much better than that. So we compare ourselves with others. Even within the church we may do it. Compare ourselves with others. Well, again, is that a good standard to have? Maybe in society's norm. But listen, when we are called to give account before our God, we will not be able to say that I'm better than Moffat. You know, if you're going to accept Moffat, you must have to accept me because I'm far better than he is. Comparative righteousness. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. So there is no one who can claim by their own works, by their comparative uh, assessment, that somehow or other they're better and, accept, better and acceptable before God. And of course, the third standard, there's self-righteousness, uh, there's comparative righteousness, and then God's level of righteousness. That's the standard. And that is the standard by which we are called to live. Not by the world's standard of righteousness, not by our own, but by God's standard of righteousness. And again, the scriptures are very clear that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. So there needs to be that change within our lives, that, that entering into a new path of life. And as we read earlier, that gateway is a narrow way. It's a tough way. It's a way of sacrifice. It's the way of the cross. 
And the only um, way that we can enter into that is through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Misplaced faith on works will not get us anywhere except for the work that Jesus has done for us in giving his life as that sacrifice so that we might know sin forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God and brought into a relationship in which God declares us righteous in his sight. Uh, Galatians says this, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, that is by trying to do the things that the law says we should do, but we continually fail. And again, we learned from last week that if we miss out on one part of the law, we are transgressors before a holy God. So again, we've all failed. There's not one of us that has kept the law of God perfectly, except, of course, our Lord Jesus. So again, we are all sinners before a holy God. But we are justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. That word justification is a, it's a big word. It's very much a, a Christian term, uh, although you'll hear it occasionally in other senses. Someone has said this, justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man or woman who believes in Jesus Christ, sinful though he or she may be, is viewed as being righteous because in and through Jesus, that man or woman has come into a right relationship with God. Friends, we cannot depend on our own works, our own deeds to bring us into that relationship, that position of being right before God. It is only in and through Jesus that that happens and God, the righteous judge, considers us righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done for us. So misplaced on works, misplaced also on creed. In verse 19, we, we read this, um, you believe in God, you, you believe that God is one. So there's, there's a statement of faith. Remember, James is writing to Jews Sorry, have we, we've skipped the, the verse there. We'll pick it up. Um, James is writing to Jews, Jewish converts, and uh, part of the Jewish faith was being able to state clearly, and this is almost the bottom line for them, God is one. They had that strong monotheistic belief, God is one, and it was readily on their lips. It was their confession uh, of faith. And here he's saying, well, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's a good place to start. But remember that even the demons uh, um, believe that. They know that, and they shudder. Doesn't bring them to faith. But at least they know and they hope against hope that somehow or other they're going to avoid the penalty 
for knowing that God is one, but not trusting and not believing in that unity. In other words, we have a creed. And there are many men and women who will come in and out of a church and they will recite the, the Apostles' Creed or any other creed, the Nicene Creed or whatever it is. They will be able to recite the Lord's Prayer. They'll come in and they will go out and they'll go into the world and live as though it didn't really matter. That is the broad way. The picking and choosing, the pick and mix. And James says, no, that doesn't work. Paul puts it this way, they have appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of it. They deny its power. And the appearance of godliness, the appearance of being a Christian, but they deny the power of it. Let's see if I can find out where we are in this, uh, this uh, thing here. There we go. I think we're back. And Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says this, without faith it's impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. There it is. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, it's not simply a matter of saying, I believe that God is one but rewards those who seek him. In other words, God is one. I want to know who this God is. I want to hear him speak. I want to know what his ways are. I want to live in ways that honor and please him. That's faith that's at work. The third uh, point would be living faith. And again, James writing to um, Jewish converts on the whole, um, any time that Jews would be looking back into their religion and looking at its roots, they would very quickly turn to the life of Abraham. Abraham was so important. We know, we, we, we know that from Old Testament history. Uh, he was the one that God chose to be the father of many nations. He was the one whom God chose who would um, who would bring into this world through him and through his wife Sarah a child and another child and a grandchild and whatever, a whole nation of people. He was the one whom God chose in his wisdom through whom the Messiah would be born and brought into this world, the Lord Jesus. So Abraham was so important to them. And James writes this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, uh, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith is dead. Faith is useless if it's apart from works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? I, I often think of this and wonder how I would react. I have two, we have, Joy and I, we have two sons whom we love very much. And uh, it's hard to imagine that God would say, I want you to sacrifice one. 
How would we react? Faith says, I believe God. I want to obey God to do what he asks me to do. And God says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your lad and go to a mountain and climb up the mountain, build an altar and put your child on it and sacrifice him. Quite a challenge, isn't it? As we read the account uh, as it's given to us in the Old Testament, Abraham didn't hesitate. Abraham did exactly as the Lord said. Even although on the way up he was challenged by the son who was a bit puzzled by what was going on and said, Dad, we've heading up the mountain, there'll be an altar, uh, we've got the wood for the fire, but where's the animal for the sacrifice? And that must have been like a, a knife in Abraham's heart. But... He said, God will provide. And on he went. And he built the altar. And he bound his son. And he laid it on the altar. And he raised the knife with full intent to kill his son. And then we know, of course, God stepped in and, and said, hold on, just hold on. And a substitute was found. For the son. But that's the picture. Uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his own son on the altar? And then he says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's interesting to, to, to note that it says Abraham believed God. It doesn't say Abraham believed in God. I checked back on the language of that, and that is the translation. Abraham believed God. In other words, he had a faith. He certainly believed in God. But here it says he believed God. In other words, he listened to what God was saying, and he put it into practice. That's the importance of it. He listened to what God was saying and he put it into practice. God was saying, you're going to be the father of many nations. Wonderful. God is saying, the only son that you have, the son of promise of uh, Isaac, I want you to kill him. And Abraham no doubt thought, okay. If that's what God wants, that's what I'll do. It's interesting as we read the book of Hebrews there and, and this incident is already mentioned. What Abraham had in his heart was that, okay, I'm going to kill my son, but God is of such 
a power and an ability that even if I kill him, God will bring him back to life because the promise must be fulfilled. That was the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, able to do and fulfill his words. And so Abraham was ready to do what God asked of him. And it says that he was accounted as righteous. Now we have a problem. Uh, many people have a problem with, with these verses in James. It's caused debate in many ways. Um, we, we, we read this in Romans. For by works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We've got this picture of Abraham was justified by faith. And Romans says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But then we read that Abraham was justified by his works. So which is right? Justified by works are justified by faith. And it seems as though the great apostle Paul and the wise senior elder James were against each other. They're arguing against each other. One said, well, not your faith is the, the means of justification. And, and James is saying, well, it's possible, you know, that works would be the means of justification. What you do I read an interesting uh, author this week and he used the picture of rather than seeing Paul and James facing each other, arguing from different points of view, see them standing back to back. Okay? Back to back, arguing against wrong doctrine that's coming to them, a wrong thought that's coming to them from different directions. Paul is arguing against those who say, I've got works. And Paul says, no, you need to have faith. James is arguing against those who have, say, I have, I have faith, but no works. And James is saying, but you've got to have works as well. Because only the faith with works completes the whole picture. Abraham was a man of faith. And that faith that he had was justified by what he did. And so the two are held together. Faith that works is a true faith. Faith that works is a living faith. Faith that works is a saving faith through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he says faith is completed by works. Faith is completed by works. And so we come to the last, a work in faith. And again, James turns and he uses another Old Testament illustration. At the same and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works 
when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Again, a great point in the history of the Jew. Uh, We're here now where the people of Israel, having been set free from their slavery in Egypt, had spent the years wandering in the desert wilderness areas, now crossed over the Red Sea, and uh, we're entering into the land of promise, and they come up against the great city of Jericho. And uh, the people in Jericho had begun to hear of what was happening out there, how the nation actually had come up over the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they had conquered lands uh, over there. The kings had been destroyed, the people subdued, and now this mass of people were about to cross over the Jordan, and they were coming in, and the first place they were going to get to, the first major city, was Jericho. They knew about it, and they were fearful. And yet here is this woman Uh, Rahab, she was called a prostitute because of her way of living. She heard this and she talked about the wonder of who God is, the God of this people. And she, she talked and by the grace of God and by the work of the Spirit, she was able to exercise faith. This is the God who's going to come and do here also what he has done for his people on the other side of Jordan. While people were afraid, she expressed a faith in him, so much so that when the spies turned up, two spies came, they found her, and she looked after them. Such was her faith in what God was going to do, that she was looked after God's, God's servants, she hid them, she protected them, and then she went sent them on their way safely. Just like Abraham, in a way, a very different story. But you can't imagine two different people so far apart. Abraham would have been coming from a a family, a wealthy family. Rahab was of a very different part of society. But it doesn't matter. Faith and works. It doesn't matter whether you're rich born or poor born, whether your skin color is dark or light. It doesn't matter. Faith and works offered to all freely in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was just another example of uh, faith that works. And then James finishes it off and he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Behold together. We cannot simply have faith as a compartment of our life and the rest of our life is another compartment. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. True faith, living faith, faith that works, is faith that believes and trusts in God as creator and savior and lives life daily to please him under his royal law, loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. I can't help today but finish, and it's uh, in the providence of God that this is a passage that's before us. 
but to commend you as a church for what you have done over the years with respect to Ken and Jocelyn and their family. You're people of faith, and you've exercised that faithfulness in prayer. You've worked week in, week out for the years. You've worked. You've trusted. You've obeyed. You've brought the matter before the Lord. You've upheld a family in your prayers. You've continued to support them in every way practically possible. That's a commendation. You know, I, 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 I've been in many churches over the years, and I don't think I've been in one where such an experience has had an impact on the body of believers. Faith that works. Faith that persists. Faith that believes. Faith that looks for an outcome. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, has given you an answer. I have to say, though, it doesn't always pan out that way. There are many, even perhaps within the congregation, who have been praying for years for a situation. And it hasn't changed. And even in the midst of life, it won't change. It's not that God hasn't heard. It's, God, it's not that God doesn't care. It's that God, who is wise and loving, has got an eternal purpose in how things will work out. So be encouraged. Don't let your faith fail because the answer is not there. But be encouraged through your experience. You are a people who have faith and you are a people who have seen that that, work, that faith works and your faith is working. It's good to have been with you and part of that journey at least. And uh, I commend you and I'm sure the Lord will commend you also in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that faith is a gift from you. And like all gifts that are given to us from a loving Father in heaven, it is a living faith. It is a faith that then bears fruit. And then it's working out, Father, we rejoice to see its effect, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. Lord, forgive us when our faith diminishes, 